Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am Anthony, and I'm here with Amanda and Steve. Say hi, guys. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Waiting for you, Steve. I, I waved. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see you wave. Nobody sees because you're just in a little, you know, box down below. If Amanda's talking and saying an excited hello to everyone and you're just waving, then nobody even sees you. I was trying to be nonchalant. We were well, trying to spotlight it. <laughs> I blew it. I, I blew your nonchalant approach. Well, anyway, gang, we want to get right into it tonight. We are very excited to be with you here um, on the World Wide Web, the World Wide Interwebs. And we uh, first wanted to share a story um, of an ex-turtle poacher who uh, won an award, um, who has been turned into a echo warrior. Really cool. You didn't um, win the award. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. That's very important to uh, to to, uh, to bring up for sure. I love so. this. Yeah, I, this is just the coolest. I, it absolutely is. So, um, I can't read it now. That's too small. and I'm not going to remember his name. You can't pronounce his name anyway, Anthony. Makotikoti? Makotikoti. Makotikoti. So, um, Mr. Z here. Uh, was a turtle poacher with a particular set of skills, just like uh, our friend in the movie Taken. Um, so obviously those skills could have been used to exploit the animals at, like so many people do. If there's money and you can you know, take care of your family, you're going to go and do what you got to do, right? So why not, how ingenious is this, why not take some funds, take some resources, and bring them right over to the, to the poachers and turn the poacher into uh, a hero? Use those skills, it. you know? Isn't it great? Yeah. No, it, it really is because, you know, it, I think the biggest thing that people aren't really realizing um, about this poaching crisis that's kind of just taking place across the world with not only turtles, but of course, as we know, elephants, rhinos, gorillas, you know, all of these species are just absolutely disappearing because of poachers, and it just completely villainizes poachers. And it's not to say that poachers are are, you know, these misunderstood people, you know, in many cases, you know, they are absolutely un, you know, uninterested in conservation, but in many cases, you know, they are just people trying to feed their families, trying to make a living, and in their culture, they weren't brought up with this strong sense of stewardship towards the environment. They were brought up with this, you know, we need to learn how to survive. So this story humanizes a poacher and says, you know, there is this you know, this, this potential for this person to turn their life around. And and more importantly, I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, we need to eliminate these poachers. We need to absolutely, you know, we have to stop poaching. Sometimes the only option is to give these poachers another means of, mm -hmm. um, and you can't, you can't just take these people away. You need to be able to replace poaching with something else. And for the example, of, of doing that, you know, so I love, I absolutely love this story. I totally agree, and and another thing to keep in mind is that when the animals are first being poached, they're being collected and they're being sold for really small amounts of money, and that's pretty much standard across the board. 
Um, and then they're going through middleman after middleman after middleman before actually reaching their destination. So um, it's really not that much to pay someone to... I think Steve brought up um, from uh, Peter Pritchard's uh, most recent book where he basically just shares his memoirs and his experiences, um, Tales from the Tibet, um, where he would pay uh, local poachers or local villagers um, basically like double what they were getting for selling the eggs to to bring the to bring the animals to him or to show him where the nests were so he could protect him or, or what have you. So um, it's it makes perfect sense. And actually, this is really interesting. I had a little thought, so I'm going to make an analogy very quickly. So please bear with me uh, for a moment. I one of my first jobs out of college, I wanted to be a police officer really badly for a while when I was in shape. And, Many, uh, yeah, many, many moons ago now, but um, I got a job as an undercover operative for Macy's, which like the big department store. So I worked in their big warehouse, and my job was to basically make friends with people, and um, and basically figure out from the inside who was stealing, because a lot of people steal from those jobs, right? Well, needless to say, I was horrible at that job. Number one, because I'm six foot nine and stick out like a sore thumb no matter where I am. And number two uh, is because I um, I had a college. I was the only person there with a college degree, and I just for every reason I was just I just stuck out like a sore thumb, and nobody really got close to me. So if you think of like taking just as an example, because obviously I think with tunnel tunnel vision because I'm an American, but if you take like an American uh, conservationist and throw them in um, the African wilderness to protect a species, how successful do you think they would be as compared to somebody who's actually grown up there, knows all the people around, knows the lingo, and knows how to get in with people, and has some you know local pull, for lack of a better term, to actually have some influence on the ground and make some things happen and, and maybe start to educate people about stuff. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah, no, it's, it's and sometimes when we go in and, and try, um, you know, us being like conservationists, scientists, stuff like that, these people very often feel like we're belittling them, like we don't understand their struggle. You know, in many ways that we don't, you know, we, we don't understand because a lot of us are brought up with this strong, you know, sense of stewardship and sense of, you know, protecting the environment, but that's not a part of their culture. So they, they you know, it's very easy to feel, you know, offended if somebody's coming into your culture and telling you that what you're doing is wrong by just right. trying to make money because they don't see animals sometimes the same way that we do. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's important for you know, that that a person from that culture to start realizing the value of these animals or doing something differently. And uh, and more importantly, I think it's great that he was recognized with an award, you know, to show you don't have to be a scientist, you don't have to be this, you know, this this PhD, this college graduate to get this award. You can just care about the environment and make a conscious effort and uh, be recognized in the same way that a scientist or anybody else would be. I love that. Me too. Oh, I just feel good about it. Yeah, for once, a good story in the news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just makes me want to sit here and be happy. Yeah, but, 
no, no. the show must go on, as they say. Yeah. And actually, this was a good um, set. Well, there was a moment where there was a good segue, but I've now ruined it. So, anyway, we we should get into our topic for the night, um, which is and you were talking about how people feel about these animals, and that's that's where I was going to try to segue, and then obviously ruined it again. But um, so, how we feel about our animals? Um, I think that we all. I I talk about this all the time. I'm a social worker, so I work with people who have like mental health diagnoses or substance use history, stuff like that. So they, uh, and no matter what your diagnosis is, no matter what your, your personal history is, no matter what your educational background is, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, um, we're all different and we're all very individual. So even though we have this really quite odd um, hobby and interest in the world, um, every single one of us within that very uh, niche, uh, very niche uh, group of people is our, we're our own individual and we bring our own kind of flavor to it and um, you know we may think we have each other figured out but really we can agree or disagree on every little uh, sub uh, issue that might come up so I think a big one and a big starting place that is very widely debated and this doesn't have to be who's right or wrong but I do think that it makes a very good debate, uh, and that is basically how we see our animals and um, whether or not we should try to make sure that they're as tame as possible or kept as naturally as possible. And we brought this up before, so if you've heard me talk about this before, you will hear my opinions again if you haven't, but if you have, please bear with me on my side of it. Um, but I thought it was a really important topic to bring up while we had Amanda here because she um, she has an, an expertise that goes far beyond turtles, which is obviously uh, the forte of Steve and I. So to be able to talk about it a little differently, because I know snake people view uh, the temperament of their animals in a different way than most turtle people um, or most people who are really, really, really into turtles. Um, so I, I just... I guess I, if, if that's a good enough uh, of, of an intro into this, um, how do you, and I don't mean to set you up, Amanda, uh, without going further, but I also don't want to talk forever, so how do you uh, view your animals um, as far as wanting them to be tame or not? I'm so excited to talk about this. It's honestly such a great topic uh, to bring up. Now we're talking about the captive keeping of animals. I think that is definitely, this is the first thing I'm saying, definitely depends on the animal. But for the most part, I think that taming your animals is, is honestly, in, in many cases with many animals, and I'll, I'll bring up some great examples, it's, it's absolutely vital to the, to the quality of life of your animal. But it depends on what kind of animal. And I also think um, that it's different than anthropomorphizing your animal. I think that taming your animal and actually giving your animal human emotions, human qualities, treating it as though it has different needs than it really does. Like, oh, my animal likes when I read him bedtime stories. My animal likes when I talk to him while he eats. Or he likes when I, you know, call him this or put a sweater on him or likes this TV channel. Like, I've heard all these crazy things. And at the end of the day, we know deep down inside what the primal needs of our animals are, and we shouldn't 
we shouldn't, you know, extend upon those needs that maybe uh, a child or another human would have. Um, and and there, that's very different than actually taming your animal. Um, and so it's important to, to separate those two. Um, and so when it comes to turtles, I think, yeah, we're kind of, hold on. Are we, are we good? No, we're good. We're good. Please continue. Continue. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I think when it comes to turtles and tortoises, um, it can, you know, it, it can be a situation where I think, you know, Anthony, you wrote a really good article on just kind of leaving those types of animals alone. And I have a lot of types of animals that do best when they're when you just kind of step away and and give them this, you know, pretty naturalistic enclosure where they have everything they need, giving them their food you know, the proper lighting and everything like that. But in the case of um, certainly snakes, like reticulated pythons, monitor lizards especially, those are animals that are going to have a bad quality of life if they fear humans, because there's a lot of human contact in the, you know, in, in raising those animals, and so when you have an animal that could be potentially dangerous, but has the potential to be tamed, um, you know, I've seen monitors that are that are completely, you know, they're wild caught, they've never been worked with, they're not tamed, mm -hmm. and they live a, a, a pretty, you know, a life that, you know, I would honestly rather see that animal living in the wild. Because uh, when you have a, an animal in the wild, of course, that animal has an instinct of like, oh my gosh, that's a predator. I'm in fear of my life, I need to defend myself, and you start seeing like a monitor lizard, for example, start huffing and puffing, just hyperventilating, getting out whenever you're going in to feed them or clean their enclosure, and you know, that's a really stressful life for that monitor. Um, but if you take a tame monitor, that animal is going to see you come in, going to recognize you, going to realize that they, he doesn't live in the wild, he doesn't have to worry about predators, he doesn't have to worry about getting eaten. You are bringing him his food. You're going in. You're, you know, you are a part of his everyday life. And I see so much less stress from these animals. Same with reticulated pythons and other snakes of all different types. You know, they, they start to recognize their their uh, their routine, and they live a, a much less stressful life when they are tamed and when they're taught to recognize humans as a part of their life. And when that wild you know, instinct is actually taken out when they're taught to realize that they're <coughs> in the wild and that we're not going to eat them. So it can go both ways. You know, and I see people kind of coddling their animals and, um, you know, doing too much with them uh, and stuff like that. And then in another sense, uh, you know, when I worked at the New England Aquarium, I worked with some marine mammals, uh, like seals, and those guys were actually taught to partake in their own husbandry. So they were taught to open their mouth. They were taught to give you know, their flippers to the vet. They were taught to uh, take an injection. They were taught to just completely take part in their husbandry. It made it safer for the seals, safer for the keepers. And it made it a completely no-stress situation when those keepers would go in and work with those animals. So in many cases, taming an animal, to me, uh, means not to teach it to juggle a ball on its nose or teach it to follow you around, but teach it that humans are a part of its life and that it no longer lives in the wild and that humans are a positive aspect. Humans, you know, mean food. Humans mean, uh, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to sustain your life. 
when I'm doing something to you, that, that means I'm not trying to hurt you, but I'm, you know, I'm going to make you feel better. And I've seen many animals realize this, learn this. You know, I've seen monitors even just let somebody clip their nails completely because even though it's uncomfortable for them, they know humans aren't going to hurt them. And I've seen it completely increase the quality of life for some animals. So I am uh, big on taming animals that I think, uh, you know, do better with it. Um, and I would love to hear you guys' opinions on this, especially because you have, uh, you know, mostly turtles and horses and stuff like that. So I don't know. Awesome. I'm sure Go ahead, CB. No, no is that just me? I can hear my, my echo. Okay, that's what it is. I'm embarrassed. Okay. So one question about this that I have after hearing your your thoughts, which your thoughts are wonderful and are different than mine, which I think is great for the conversation. So um, I'll tell you my my personal thoughts afterwards, and I'm actually going to try to have a turtle poop on me in a few minutes. Which so stay tuned for that. I'm really excited about it. Every time I, it's really difficult for like when it comes time to weigh them, but um, I, I actually like when my turtles poop on me. I like when they, when they try to bite me. Well, now I'm telling you my, my thoughts, which I said I wasn't going to. So let me get to this one thought. Um, so I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just being a little like philosophical or trying to play devil's advocate here or whatever, but conservation-wise, let's say, let me give you a hypothet hypothetical. Let's say, um, you just take a, a, a species of um, turtle. Um, I don't even know what. Let's say red ear sliders are endangered. And we all know that red ear sliders are, they're not, they're not endangered, but let's just say they were, and we all know how they get excited and they come up the side of the tank and start doing this fluttery thing when they want food and all of that. And let's also say that red ear sliders aren't as bulletproof as they are. They're a bad example because uh, they're red ear sliders. But um, anyway, so let's say over time you have like a zoo breeding pro program for them and over the course, course of 40 years you're breeding them and um, the ones that survive, that don't die, uh, eventually you're, you're selective breeding them because of the, the environment you have them in, because you're taming them. Uh, you're, even if you're not... Obviously they don't, they're not parents to their offspring. However, if the ones that keep surviving are the ones that do really well in those super captive, unnatural conditions, then eventually we are, we are breeding the wildness out of them. I would, I, I'm just wondering. I, I'm, I'm wondering. And then if... Um, if we do so, and 40 years in now, all of a sudden we have this new uh, race of of turtles that kind of really aggressively swim at the side of the tank and are not scared of humans and all of that, then would we be able to to return those animals to the wild, therefore making it an actual conservation project? Yeah, no, that's that's a perfect point. I think it, one of the most important things to consider when you're talking about this that goal of are these ever going to end up becoming wild again. I think that you should treat wild animals that are that are meant for the wild, that are you know meant to be displayed in a wild enclosure that means plenty of space, not a lot of contact with humans. Um, that is one hundred percent you know an important aspect of being those animals wild. But when that's an animal again like a pet water monitor like a pet 
you know, big snake or these animals that are part of a breeding project that you're doing these crazy morphs with, those animals are never going to go back to the wild. And I've actually seen fourth generation water monitors hatch and immediately, you know, usually the, the, even the third generation water monitors will hatch. And they'll have that instinct of like, oh my gosh, this thing's about to eat me. But the fourth generation, they will crawl right up your arm immediately and just be like, hello there, I have no fear whatsoever. And mm -hmm. so you can see um, that, you know, that, that very slow process of almost domestication of these animals losing that fear. The fear of humans, it can be, it can be dangerous for humans, it can be dangerous for the animal, it can be stressful for the animal, stressful for the human. But in the wild, it is necessary for animals to fear humans because that's going to save their life. That's going to teach them to fear everything else that mm -hmm. they should fear. So, uh, you know, an example of keeping animals wild that need to be wild. Um, I've worked with lots of blanding turtles. And at the aquarium, we had two blanding turtles that were target trained. They were, um, you know, that means that they go right up to a target and they hit it with their nose and they get food for that. And it teaches them to come up to a certain place to get fed. Uh, they were trained to partake in their own husbandry, and they were, you know, trained to to completely be able to be picked up without freaking out. Um, and so these were two animals that were never going to go back in the wild, never be bred. They were uh, education animals. We did presentations with them, but we also had in a completely yep. There's is that a landings little yeah. little Nile. <laughs> so cute. I love them so much. They're such a wonderful. And you know the big goofy males that we had that were tame, they were just mm -hmm. awesome. But then we had all these Head Start hatchlings. They were in a completely different room. They were much smaller than that little guy there. And we'd actually try to grow them up to that size over the course of only like you know maybe nine or ten months, which is kind of cool. How old is that animal? <laughs> a lot older than nine or ten months. Exactly. Um, this is um, going on. Three years, almost wow. a couple months, couple months shy of three years. Yeah, it's funny because that's actually the kind of the goal we would always say. We're trying to get them to that three-year-old size um, mm -hmm. because it gives them a better chance of surviving when we do release them. But those we that do, would happen that would happen more quickly. Yeah, yeah, because we keep them awake over the winter. Mm -hmm. uh, so we wouldn't hibernate the hatchlings, and we just feed them, you know, a really pretty pretty calorie-heavy, you know, lots of food and stuff like that. Try to get them nice and sizable for release. Uh, but those turtles were destined to be re-released because mm -hmm. Massachusetts blanding turtles are endangered. So mm -hmm. we were, you know, helping this population. Those little turtles, you know, they didn't people. We would drop food in. We would leave them alone. You know, they were not accustomed to people. So when you pick them up, you're going to have a turtle trying to get away, trying to bite you, trying to, you know, completely scared of people because when we re-release them and, you know, you have somebody canoeing, uh, if they're coming up to the boat, you're like, oh, God, leave me. And they're just so cute. People wouldn't be able to resist taking them home. So, or, and, and it's just dangerous for them. We just don't want them to lose their wild instinct. And we I, did that with the African <clears throat> penguins. Even though we've never released African penguins back in the wild, they are uh, with the species survival plan. And there's not yet been anything implemented on how to release them back in the wild. But they're expected to go extinct in the wild in the next 10 years. So we're, of course working towards that. So even though they're all captive, even though it would be so much easier for everybody to have tame penguins, they don't tame their penguins because they're a part of species survival. We want to eventually you know, be bringing these animals back to the wild. Um, so I think a lot of places do keep that in mind, and I think it's super important to keep in mind, for sure. So you definitely are on 
you know, on point with your, with your perspective on that, for sure. Well, I think that's a big reason why with the Turtle Room we, we did the conservation and education piece, and the education thing is something that we're really, really passionate about because it's something we can do. We're not, we could only breed so many animals, and, and only such a small fraction of those would ever go back, so what are we really doing here? And what's really needed, it's, it's education. So um, I will say my blandings, the reason why they're a little on the smaller side is I do co cool them during the winter. Mm -hmm. um, the breeding and everything, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're not planning on re-releasing them. We're trying to, you know, get them up to a certain weight by a certain time, and that's Interesting. Um, I was contacted by a zoo that um, is involved with head-starting Pacific pond turtles, and they are having troubles with their turtles, and that's why I asked if you were growing them up quickly, and they think it might be because they're growing them up quickly to get them to a good size early, because um, in the same exact environment, the head-started turtles are then reach adulthood uh, or sub-adulthood, and they're right alongside the wild turtles. And the ones that were head-started around five, six, seven years of age end up getting this really bad ulcerative, like shell rot, which is not there. There are no traces of anything when they release them. So they're thinking that growing. The only difference is that they're growing up faster, and they're growing up in a very clean environment when for that during the head-starting. So something about either of those two variables is causing them to be more prone to something that they normally have immunity to. Yeah. Um, it's really That's fascinating. Crazy. Yeah, they probably missed this like this like critical period of immunization right. completely, and they just go right past it. It's crazy. So they thought maybe that like the the more accelerated growth, like you know, caused some kind of uh, weakness in the keratin in the shell in certain areas or something that let some kind of bacteria that they're normally immune to um, kind of wreak havoc and, and be, uh, take the opportunity to, uh, re and they're really bad. I, I had a couple in captivity that had it, and we have a couple YouTube videos that show it, and it's really gruesome stuff. It's really sad. So, That's so sad, yeah, because, like, they do their best, you know, in, in a Head Start program. I work with several different species of Head Starts, and one of the things that you see in every one is that we want to make sure these turtles stay that they everything that they do stays with them. That nothing else goes in because they never want to, you know, risk releasing something else mm -hmm. into that habitat. Mm -hmm. So it's you know you dip mats and gloves and this that and everything else, and right. um, you know that that sterilization and, and being so careful and taking them out of the wild to to help them. Sometimes you know backfires. Right. You know we just have to keep on trying and learning because I've seen super you know, wonderful results with some Head Start programs, but that's, that's really interesting. I'll have to read more about that. That's crazy. You know, I think one of the things that we're, you know, kind of, I don't know, coming to a conclusion of here or something that hopefully our listeners are, are gathering here is that um, the end purpose of the animals is important as, as to what kind of decisions we're making uh, on the husbandry care mm -hmm. and whether we are trying to tame them or keep them wild. And so there really isn't a flat right or wrong answer that, oh, right. never tame your animals. Because mm -hmm. yeah, it's very valuable for an educational ambassador animal to kind of be engaged with with the humans yeah. that, it, that the animal is, <clears throat> is serving its purpose to educate. But at the same point, you know, these animals that we want to head start, it's very important that they don't get comfortable with humans. Oh. And they don't get... 
Um, and so I think, you know, I think there's a really, it can be an enlightening conversation and kind of show the other aspects from that, uh, from that article we um, had, had shared on our blog a couple weeks ago is that um, it, it really is uh, very much end means make part of the decision and if the animal isn't going to be headed back to the wild, there may not be a right or wrong answer as far as do we keep it wild, do we tame yeah. it, etc. Absolutely. Yeah, like a great example of just a stark difference in the personality of a turtle would be diamondback terrapins. Um, yeah, I've worked with both captive diamondback terrapins and wild diamondback terrapins, and it's almost like day and night. The wild diamondback terrapins are some of the flightiest wild mm. turtles I have ever worked with. If they see you crouching down in the while they're laying, and they will drop the clutch and just completely, you know, they, they drop, they get egg bound, they, they stress out. So when we're trying to do these nest site evaluations, if we see a nesting female, we actually have to just turn her out because we could compromise that entire generation if she even catches a glimpse of us because they're that flighty. But on the same note, if a terrapin is in human care for like two weeks and they start to learn that you mean food, they will follow you around the house if you put them down like a dog. And they'll beg. Every time you even come near the room, they'll be going towards you. They're, they're, they splash so much, they blow their light bulbs out. You know, they're just, they're the nuttiest puppy dogs of the turtle world, as you said last episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's a stark difference from how they are in the wild. And, it, and if you put, you know, a, a terrapin that's been in human care back in the wild, that animal is going to just, you know, it's just going to be a disaster. It's going to be walking up to the first two minutes he's trying to get food instead of being, you know, this flighty animal that it, that it needs to be to survive. So, absolutely. Oh, what do you got there? Sorry. Oh. Steve, you know what that is? It's Squeaks. That's not Squeaks. That's the little one. Oh, that's the little one. Oh, um, I can't think of its name right now. It's Akashan. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Listen, which I think means, yeah, well, well, here. So, first of all, a young female, very excited about that, um, almost positive, and looking a bit overweight, which is fine. But this turtle hates being handled, the species hates being handled, mm -hmm. which is absolutely fine with me because I want them to breed and they'll be more likely to breed when they... Um, when they are comfortable and in a natural state. Absolutely. So, of course, she's making me a liar right now because this turtle literally poops and pees on me. In I was going to actually play a game where I said, okay, guys, time this. I'm going to pick this turtle up, and we'll see how long it takes for this turtle to poop on me. And um, when I was researching for the book that I wrote, um, the cane turtle in um, India the researchers, it makes it really easy to get fecal samples because every time the wild turtles are just picked up for a second, they give you a fresh fecal sample immediately. And I couldn't help but read that and then think about their close cousins, uh, the Okinawa or Ryuku black-breasted leaf turtle, Dewey um, Mita japonica, and think about how, how I honestly can't weigh them without mm -hmm. having them defecate all over me. It's, it's okay. actually... 
atrocious, but it has not gone to the bathroom on me. I even have a towel on my computer because I'm scared that it's going to make something happen. But I can explain it without actually showing you, and you get you get the gist that I like to be pooped on by my turtles. Well, and uh, that uh, that uh, female Odoratus we pulled out of the lake uh, last Friday um, musked on Eric right after he picked her up. Right. You know, basically just instincts. Mm -hmm. Human picks up wild musk turtle. Or snapping turtle, oh my gosh. Like, pretty much every time. So funny. But, yeah, I mean, that's their thing. Like, they got to learn to protect themselves. It's the same with, you know, I've seen a lot of, like, really tame snapping turtles. And it's just, it's crazy. Because, yeah. you know, those animals can't, you know, they, they have to be able to defend themselves. Another really interesting point I wanted to bring up about monitors is that, you know, I talk a lot about, Oh, you know your water or any monitor, not you know not, not just your water monitors, but any monitor, especially something that's going to get big and potentially dangerous. It's important to tame them if that's going to be a pet. Um, even if you're going to breed them again, because it it keeps their stress level down. Uh, you know, to have a monitor being stressed out when the human is trying to do something for it, it's just stressful situation for that animal, stressful life. But I have also seen monitors, and this happens all the time. So it's important to do so much research and just really think about the captive life of the animal and what it means to tame them. Because a lot of tame monitors end up becoming obese because they are fed, you know, a whole lot, probably more than, you know, your average monitor is getting out in the wild, just like any captive animal. But they're also, they feel so relaxed, they, they feel so, you know, just no reason for them to be flighty, no reason for them to hide or try to run away, but they're just laying around all day long, and they do end up putting a lot of weight on. I've seen a lot of really nice monitors that are supposed to be breeders become too lazy to even breed. So it's important if you do uh, you know, want to tame an animal that you keep in mind that that animal's energy level and that the amount of energy and food that that animal's burning is going to significantly reduce, and you need to you know, actually take take that taming and bring it um, and, and kind of turn it into enrichment and turn it into exercise. So I've seen a lot of people with their monitors, you know, they're really tame, but then they end up, you know, having them chase, you know, a prey item around the house to get them their exercise or do something. You know, they end up, you know, having them climb and have to really, uh, you know, get that prey item to, to, to get that exercise that they need. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it can be actually detrimental to their life if they end up becoming too too calm and then they, they don't get any exercise and they end up becoming really overweight. So uh, there's a lot more that you end up having to do to compensate for that animal losing its natural uh, you know way of life and the ways that it naturally burns off its, its food and stuff like that. So that's a really good thing to keep in mind is that you really kind of have to go that extra mile. It doesn't make your job easier to have a tame animal. And in many ways, you really do have to make up for that in so many more kind of unnatural ways, like having your monitor chase something around the house or something like that. So, yeah. Right, right. So I wanted to go back to something I said earlier. I just want everyone to know that I don't dislike readier sliders, okay? I just want to make sure... <laughs> just, you know, a little, you know... Little shout out to our friends, uh, the old red ears, um, because it's not their fault. Exactly. It's, the, it's human's that's fault. Mm -hmm. yeah. I see that all the time. 
that's a whole other topic of just like the villainization of invasives. Oh my gosh, people mm. that are so cruel to cane toads. And again, we just have to remember that it's it, they have no idea they're an invasive species. They're just an animal trying to survive in a habitat mm. that they don't know that they don't belong in. So who can Somebody's, do for trying to survive? Somebody's been watching Steve Irwin reruns over here. Oh gosh, yeah, that's pretty much like ingrained in my brain. <laughs> I have a whole encyclopedia of crocodile hunter. Yeah, episode. the invasive yeah. episode was a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the cane toads. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but it's important to th- to think about this stuff, and I, I think this topic is a great one. I um, I think you you touched on something really uh, interesting earlier, and um, I think that's another piece of it too, and. Um, I think I should give the disclaimer also that we all started somewhere and that we, you know, we need to respect those question askers and, you know, maybe the new generation is a little less uh, get the book on the subject and a little more, well, let me just go on Facebook and just ask the question without actually Googling something, um, which is an easy enough choice uh, uh, option in itself. But, you know, just to be patient, because I know I asked a lot of questions um, when I was first starting out. Uh, the Turtle Forum was my was basically a place that I grew up, in a sense, and um, there were a lot of amazing people there who, who helped me so much. And um, so I think, you know, as tough as it is now to have an email that it can be relatively full at times with people asking questions, um, I think it's really important to understand that this is a really big effort, the, the um, multifaceted effort of the conservation and the education and making sure animals are being kept properly and all of that type of stuff. So we really need all, everyone involved, um, even if they have different views, like I mentioned in, at the beginning of, the, of this topic, uh, are, are, they are our allies so we really need to make sure that we're working with them and, and helping them and taking our time and letting them t- take their time to figure it all out. Um, it's, it's just really important. Um, the piece, though, that you said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm going to pass it over to you right now. The piece that you said that I was interested in when you were talking about the beginning um, is something that I wrote about in my article, too. And I want to be careful not to be rude because we're all animal lovers here. Mm-hmm. And um, we're all in this together. Uh, the pe- you know, putting the putting the sweaters on the tortoise, or uh, the you know unnatural photo shoots, or the having your turtle sitting next to you on your favorite pillow while you watch your favorite show together. Like you said, I will say one thing. John did in in college. John had a ball python that he used to put in. And John, of course, for anyone who doesn't know, is the co-host of the podcast, um, everyone's favorite six-foot-nine redhead, and he would put the uh, the ball python in his hood, because that's all we wore in college was hoodies basically every day, um, being in the Northeast, <sighs> and uh, it would basically come and stick its head out and just kind of hang out while he was like watching TV or playing video games or whatever lazy college people do. So... Um, what about that? Again, is this just like turtles being different than snakes, or what are your what are your thoughts on that stuff? If we could just go into that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think it's yeah. I think first and foremost, everything you said is just like yes, absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, we all just love animals, so we should just connect by that, and and not only knowing that we're all here for the animals. 
Um, when it comes to stuff like that, it, again, it, it depends on the animal. It depends on the signs that you're getting from the animal. You know, I, I hang out with my snakes all the time, and if they find a comfortable place in my shirt or, you know, next to me or around my neck, and they want to hang out for a minute, I know that my snake has every single, you know, or has the power, I guess I should say, to move if they don't want to be there and go somewhere else. And so, you know, if that snake, if I if I open the enclosure and my snake is like, oh, I would like to, you know, come out and, and explore, that doesn't necessarily mean that I, you know, I could be like, oh, you're so cute, you want to come out and explore. But that snake really does want to utilize more space. And, and then they find a warm spot and they just kind of park it for a minute, then I can, I can actually kind of indulge my own, you know, maybe selfishness and be like, I can spend time with an animal that I truly love. And we kind of are both winning because my animal is not trying to get away from me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily, you know, planning on breeding this animal. I'm not, and, and a lot of my animals are education animals or pets or this, that, and everything else. And so as long as you're not forcing your animal to do anything, as long as your animal is not giving you signs that indicate that this is not really what they want to do, uh, as long as your animal is healthy, you know, some, some cases you've got an animal that's just really maybe overweight or not so healthy and might, might be kind of in exhibiting this, this content behavior, but really it's actually just lethargic. So all of those things really put into account. You've got to really know your animal. And that is my answer to kind of everything. As long as you are able to explain the behavior of that animal based on your knowledge of the animal's life history, the, the animal's biology, the animal's, you know, everything about that, the way they behave in the wild, then I think that you can kind of make those, those, uh, you know, those things happen in a, in a way that doesn't necessarily take that animal's behavior away from it. So... So yeah, that that can be a thing for sure with snakes. Not so much with turtles. I've never really met a turtle that wanted to hang out with me, but um, but it depends. So I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I I I see the difference between the different animals, and um, I I don't know. I I just I think it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So Steve, do you hang out with your turtles on the couch watching sports and stuff? Well, since all of mine are in the living room and dining room, we hang out with them whether we're, whenever we're watching television or eating dinner. So, <laughs> what are they like? <laughs> um, Bonsai, the four-eyed turtle, he he absolutely loves people. So, uh, I I mean, he will ignore food because there's people nearby to pay attention to. He is so photogenic. It's so funny. I I, I totally. I, I don't think you ever personally told me that. But just know, just seeing all of his photos where he's just looking right at the camera, you know, yeah. he just—I was like, either that's a really lucky shot, or that turtle's actually photogenic. <laughs> he's a—he's a freaking ham. <laughs> um, but in some ways, it can be—it can be hard to get a picture of him for the same reason, because sometimes he just wants to scramble right over to the to the glass, and all of a sudden there goes the good, the good picture shot, <laughs> you know. So, like. In his case, he's not like, "Ooh, I'm jumping off the basking area because I'm scared." It's, "I'm jumping over the off the basking area because I'm gonna come over and say hi." Yeah. And so, <laughs> um, you know, he's a he's an absolute hoot. But we sit there and eat dinner, and he's over there splashing against the side of the the tank, you know, because he's really just like, "Hey, what's that? up, people?" And my, you know, my wife loves that about him because she can interact with him, engage with him, and feed him by hand. And so, to, you know, that's one of the really exciting parts about the about him to her. 
What, what's really funny about that is that I have an, a, a four-eyed turtle, same same gender, same species, and twice the size, and that is the most skittish turtle I've ever had in my entire life. I, I can't get a single photo of it, and it's so wild that the exact same species for Steve is the most uh, is the biggest ham you'll ever see. So really, really interesting. And that goes into like just a quick point about the individual animals. I think a lot of the time, as maybe like a, you're thinking with your scientist mind, you think of these animals as okay. Well, in the wild, they exhibit this behavior, that behavior, and every other. But I've met an individual animal of every kind, yeah. an animal that I just can't wrap my mind around why that animal acts the way it does. And I just gotta chalk it up to that is just the way they are. You know, I've had two green tree pythons now that are just absolutely fantastic animals. And for people who know green tree pythons, you know that they're not known for their personality. They're known to be really bitey. They're known to be just really nasty. They've got these really long teeth. They're very perch aggressive. They're very, uh, you know, very eager to feed. So they have a huge feeding response. And they're just not known to be a snake that you can handle. But both of mine now have just been fantastic. They've just been like, hi, like, you know, and you and you think it's a different species. Like, you're getting this ball python vibe from a green tree python, uh, and and you just can't really explain it other than you know either that animal's been handled its whole life or that's just the way they are. So, uh, sometimes you just gotta chalk it up to the individual's personality that animals can have. Right, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Seen it firsthand. Yep. <laughs> oh, you got to see Bonsai for the first time in a while last weekend, so. Yeah, I missed him. We have a connection, and um, I think he missed me a lot. And uh, it was mutual. We talked. We talked. Uh, we slept in the same room. So <laughs> that means anything. Yeah. That means a lot. Yeah, me and all 20 turtles or however many there are there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I think this has been a good topic, and I think that it's one that will not go away and that we will touch on again and again and probably soon. Um, I think that, um, you know, what's most important is being understanding and open and inviting as far as other people's opinions. There's no right or wrong way to do this stuff uh, the vast majority of the time, and it's really just about supporting each other and educating others and sharing what you know or uh, being humble and um, understanding that someone else might have uh, a little more experience or someone might have a little less experience but we're all in it together and um, yeah it's not a uh, it's not a P wording contest yeah uh, you know, recent experiences remind like reminds me. Anthony and I want to encourage all of you that you know, when you think we've said something that might be a little funny, send us an email. All right, but we love when you guys reach out to us. Um, if you need us to clarify anything, if you want to ask questions, uh, we're we're turtle nerds and we'll talk and we'll hang out and. Uh, we can do that by email, so feel free to email us. We do respond. Uh, it may take a little bit sometimes because our emails inboxes get up to a thousand messages before you think it's possible. But please send us a note. We love to hear from you. We love to we love to hear you say you love us. We love we even love when you say, "Hey, I love you guys, but I didn't like this." 
because we like to talk. We like to learn too, and so um, we, lo we uh, your opinions uh, are valuable as well. That's right, and I want to thank the wonderful and uh, talented Amanda Savage for being on with us again. She is the absolute best, um, and uh, we look forward to hopefully having her on again in the future, and um, we just appreciate her knowledge of animals and reptiles in general and not just turtles. It's the best. Well, guys, I've been watching you guys for, like, you know, so long for, you know, becoming a part of this, and uh, I'm, I actually was just, like, kind of pitching myself, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to podcast with, you know, Steve and Anthony from the Turtle Room, and I actually kind of, like, you know, work with these guys. Like, so it's, it's just an honor to you know, be able to have you guys as a resource to go to, you know, you know that I always email you my turtle questions, because even though I've been keeping them for years, I still have tons of questions for people who've been doing it longer, and I think it's the best resource, you know, that you can have, and that's why it is important to do your own research, but also make friends, find mentors that have been doing it for a really long time that can, you know, just kind of guide you and just be there to not only be your friend, but to also, you know, kind of give you pointers and stuff, because they've made those mistakes and they've, they've been there, done that. So I'm, I'm always, you know, humbled to be with you guys and to be a part of this stuff and to, you know, be able to educate people the same way that you guys do with the turtle room. So thank you for having me. <laughs> we're ending, we started on a high note and we're ending on a high note. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap it up with that. That was so nice. And um, I want to say that this is the single uh, most upset I've ever been about not being crapped on in my life. And I cannot believe that that little turtle let me down. I thought I was going to get crapped on yeah. on, uh, on the air here, and it didn't happen. So anyway, besides that, everything was a complete positive. And with that, I think we can uh, bid you adieu for tonight and hope to see you next time on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you. Bye-bye.